1: They were the first team to beat the Celtics in an NBA Finals and one of three teams to do so. The Los Angeles Lakers defeated the Celtics in the Finals in 1985 and once again in 1987 with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Then later in 2010 with the late Kobe Bryant. Then last season it was the Golden State Warriors who beat the Celtics for the title. So what if I told you that the other team that beat the Celtics Did so with their star player scoring the most points in an NBA championship clinching win to claim that franchise's only NBA crown. And they did so in the city they no longer play in. Hello fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. In this edition of this program, we will begin a series of shows dedicated to forgotten franchises and their impact on their leagues during their time of operation. This episode, we will resurrect the old St. Louis Hawks who defeated the Celtics in the 1958 NBA Finals that saw future Hall of Famer Bob Pettit drop 50 points on the Celtics in the deciding game and giving the Hawks, and of course now based in Atlanta, its only NBA title. Later in the show, we will send a shout out, well of sorts, maybe a remembrance is probably the best way to put it. This week was the anniversary of the darkest day in British football history, a day that began as a FA Cup semi-final matchup, but ended when 97 people were killed and another 700 injured. And of course, we have the top five, which includes a team drafting a quarterback first in the NFL draft that changed the fortunes of a struggling franchise, and he also changed the game. This week in history also saw a young Chicago Bulls guard score a playoff record and four classic ballparks open their doors for the first time. So sit back, pump up the volume, because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network.
0: At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the row one shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it, simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the row one gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io.
1: Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and you're tuned in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we bring you the best of sports from back in the day. And right now, it is our main event, and it's safe to say that most of basketball viewing public has only known the Hawks as being in Atlanta. A small and dwindling group of basketball fans, however, could remember the days of the St. Louis Hawks. Now, this team that resided in the Gateway City was the chief foil of the mighty Boston Celtics from the mid-1950s to the early 1960s. Yet, by the late 1960s, the Hawks had left town because of what plagues most teams that relocate. Poor fan attendance and an unresolved arena issue. And the Hawks were no different. Now, let's have a little background. The Hawks, whose origins can be traced back to the Buffalo Bisons in 1946 as a member of the National Basketball League. Yet, after just a long stay in Buffalo, just 38 days, The team moved to the thriving metropolis in the the late 1940s of Moline, Illinois. They would change their name to the Tri-City Blackhawks. After a merger agreement between the Basketball Association of America and the National Basketball League, which would become the current NBA, which we all know and love, the Blackhawks would split time between Moline and Rock Island, Illinois, and Davenport, Iowa, hence the name Tri-Cities. The team was owned by Ben Kerner and Leo Ferris, and in 1951, they hired a young coach named Arnold Red Araback who would coach the Hawks or Black Hawks to their first NBA postseason appearance. Despite the early success, the team struggled in the Tri-City area. They would move for a short time to Milwaukee and shorten the name to the Hawks, but the team cont- continued to struggle on the court. In 1954, the Hawks would draft a player from Louisiana State University named Bob Pettit. He would go on to change the fortunes of the Hawks as well as redefine the power forward position. The next season, Kerner moved the team once again, this time to St. Louis, Missouri, and changed the name to the St. Louis Hawks. After the move to the East to Eastern Missouri, the team's fortunes changed practically overnight. In 1956, Bob Pettit captured the league's first official Most Valuable Player Award, and the St. Louis Hawks drafted legendary Bill Russell in the first round. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Yeah, I know that Russell was part of a draft they trade to the Celtics for Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagan, who are themselves Hall of Famers. I know that, but just think about this for a second. What if Russell had stayed in St. Louis? You had Bob Pettit at power forward, then you draft a young, shot-blocking, rebounding athletic center named Bill Russell, who had not only won back-to-back NCAA titles with the University of San Francisco, but in 1956, Russell was coming off winning the gold medal in the Melbourne Olympics. We would probably be talking about the Hawks Maybe in place of the Lakers or the Celtics as the NBA's greatest dynasty. But of course, you know Russell went to the Celtics for Easy Ed and Cliff Hagan, and the rest, as they say, is history. In 1957, the Hawks finished four games under 500. However, the Western Division that year was extremely weak, and no team in the division had a winning record they won the division title and a bye to the division finals after defeating the Minneapolis Lakers and the Fort Wayne Pistons in one-game tiebreakers. Now that sounds a lot like the NBA play-in tournament, doesn't it? Then they defeated the Lakers in the division finals to advance to the NBA Finals where they would face the Celtics, the Champions of the East. The series would take the full seven games, and with a series tied three games apiece, and both teams aiming to win their first NBA title, the Hawks and Celtics battled in what many consider one of the greatest Game 7s in NBA Finals history. In historic Boston Garden, despite a brilliant performance by Pettit and Hagan, the Hawks fell to the Celtics 125-123 in double overtime for the Celtics' first ever NBA title. It was, and still is, the only NBA Finals Game 7 to go to double overtime. Pettit finished with 39 points, while Cliff Hagan had 24 and guard Slater Martin scored 23. The next season, 1958, was a season where a couple of teams were on the move. That season, the Pistons moved out of Fort Wayne, Indiana and moved to the Motor City of Detroit. And Meanwhile, the Royals decided to leave upstate New York, which they were located in Rochester, and relocated to Cincinnati. Meanwhile, the Hawks were making moves themselves in their case in the standings. That season the Hawks tallied their first winning season with a 41 and 31 mark. St. Louis again advanced to the finals where they once again faced the Celtics who dominated the Eastern Division with a 49 and 23 mark. The Hawks upset the Celtics with a, with a healthy Bill Russell in game 1 at Boston Garden 104 to 102. Yet Boston struck back with a blowout winning game to 136 to 112. Now when the, shift, when the series shifted back to Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, the Hawks prevailed 111-108 in Game 3 when Russell severely sprained his ankle. Without Russell, the Celtics evened the series with a 109-98 surprise win in Game 4. Then St. Louis turned the tables on the Celtics, winning 102-100 to force Game 5 back in Boston to take the series lead. Now back in Kilo Auditorium in St. Louis on April 12th, the Hawks wasn't about to miss their opportunity to defeat the defending champions. Pettit turned in a spectacular performance scoring 31 points in the first three quarters, and then caught fire in the final period, nailing 19 of his, last, his team's last 21 points. His last two points on a tip-in with 15 seconds remaining put the Hawks ahead 110 to 107, and the Celtics scored one more final bucket but could do no more. The Hawks finally had the title with a 110-109 championship clinching victory. Pettit has scored 50 points, including the Hawks' 18 of the last 21 points in propelling the Hawks to the championship. Pettit's 50 points set a new finals record for most points scored by a player in a series clinching game. A record that would be finally tied by Giannis Antetokounmpo in 2021. Now, according to most observers, they figured that the Celtics probably would have won the 1958 title if Russell hadn't suffered his injury in game three. Our back, however, found no comfort in that opinion. Quote, you could always look for excuses. In this case, we just got beat, unquote. The following season, Bob Pettit led the Hawks to the Western Division best 49-23 record and helped him capture his second MVP award. However, the Hawks wouldn't reach the finals as they were defeated by the Minneapolis Lakers in in the Western Division final. The Hawks remained one of the NBA's premier teams for the next decade. In 1960, under former under former player and new coach Ed McCauley, the team advanced to the finals for the third time in four seasons, but lost to the Celtics in another seven-game thriller. The following year, with the acquisition of rookie Lenny Wilkins from Providence, the Hawks repeated their success but met the Celtics in the 1961 NBA Finals again and lost in five games. They will remain contenders for the most for most of the 1960s. And advancing deep into the playoffs and capturing several division titles. Yet it all began to change in the mid 1960s. Despite the success, Hawks owner Ben Kerner became weary of the Hawks' longtime home, Keel Auditorium. The 33 year old arena seated only 10,000 people and was starting to show its age. The Hawks occasionally played at the much larger St. Louis Arena. Also known as the Checker Dome, mostly against more popular opponents, but Kerner was not willing to move the team there full time because it had not been well maintained since the 1940s. And even though it was being heavily renovated to accommodate the arrival of National Hockey League St. Louis Blues in 1967, Kerner was not willing to move to the St. Louis Arena. He wanted a new arena to increase revenue. However, Kerner was rebuffed by the city on several occasions. In early 1967, Kerner briefly put the Hawks up for sale. One of the bidders, ironically, was a New Orleans group led by future talk show host Martin Downey Jr. But the deal collapsed and Kerner temporarily took his team off the market. Unable to resolve the arena situation in St. Louis, Kerner sold the Hawks to an Atlanta real estate developer named Tom Cousins and former Georgia Governor Carl Sanders, who moved the team to Atlanta in time for the 1968 season. And during the Hawks' time in St. Louis, which lasted from 1955 through 1967, they played in four NBA Finals in five years and featured the likes of Hall of Famers Bob Pettit, Lenny Wilkins, Cliff Hagan, Slater Martin, and Lou Hudson. Other great players that wore the Hawks uniforms included Paul Silas, Richie Guerin, who would later coach the Hawks, and also Jumpin' Joe Caldwell and Clyde Lavellen. The Hawks were one of the great teams and great franchises during the NBA's more formative years. And that was this episode's main event. And coming up is the top five where we highlight the great sports moments that took place between the dates of April 16th and April 22nd. Now these moments include one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history drafted into the a league where he would change the fortunes of a foundering franchise and alter the course of the NFL. Also, one of basketball's greatest sto- scorers had a historic afternoon in a losing effort, and four Major League Baseball ballparks opened their doors to the public for the first time. That and so much more coming up on this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History
0: Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the sports yesteryear. Hosted by Ross Bliley, the Pigskin Tales Podcast takes you on a journey through life of pro football stars such as Ernie Nevers, Red Grange, and Fran Tarkenton. Plus, you might not know them real well, but you can hear stories about Bill Brown, Grady Alderman, and Dave Osborne. You can learn more on these players at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash podcasts backslash pigskin-tales. Hello
1: and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at historicallysp2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And now it is time for the top five moments in sports history in this week from April the 16th through April the 22nd. And so without further delay, here we go. Number five, Peyton Manning drafted number one by the Indianapolis Colts. Heading into the 1998 NFL Draft, there was one question on everyone's mind. Who would the Indianapolis Colts take with the first pick in the upcoming draft? There were two supposed can't-miss NFL prospects that year that were slated to go 1 and 2. The first was a strong-armed quarterback from the University of Tennessee who was the son of a former NFL quarterback and who starred for a team that consistently was in the hunt for the SEC title at a time when that conference was ruled by the university of florida and head coach steve spurrier the other was out of washington state who pro scouts and other people in the know compared him quite favorably to perennial pro-, pro Bowl quarterback dan marino and as it turned out the coach with that number one pick decided to take the kid from the university of tennessee named peyton manning manning would go on to turn around a struggling franchise and in the process turned the Colts into a dominant AFC team for over a decade and single-handedly transformed the position of quarterback. Manning, after his career concluded, had passed for 71,940 yards, won the Super Bowl twice that included a Super Bowl MVP award. He was a Pro Bowler 14 times, 5-time league most valuable player, and tallied 539 touchdown passes. On the other hand, that other not miss prospect was Ryan Leaf, who was drafted in with the second pick by my San Diego Chargers. Leaf, for a time, was the poster child for NFL quarterback busts until Jamarcus Marcus Russell came along. Drafting quarterbacks in the first round is still an inexact science. Number 4. Joe Montana Announces His Retirement on April 18th, 1995, Joe Montana announced his retirement from the NFL. That began the debate that still rages to this day. Who was the greatest quarterback ever? Now, some of the old heads from a different generation would argue John Unitas. Some in my generation would say John Elway or maybe even Dan Marino. In 1995, those choices were those those were the choices because no one had ever heard of Peyton Manning or Tom Brady for that matter, but they would come along soon after montana's nickname was joe cool and for good reason he never seemed flustered or even even when the niners were down 35 to 7 to the saints and rallied them to victory in 1980 or the time that joe montana hit dwight clark in the back corner the end zone to propel san francisco to their first super bowl appearance in the 1981 nfc championship game he seemed totally in control when he drilled the pass to john taylor to deny the Bengals in super bowl 23 with 39 seconds remaining in regulation his coolness was under extreme pressure actually traveled with him when he went to kansas city and rallied the chiefs past john elway and the broncos in a 1994 monday night football game that i consider the greatest monday night football game ever When Montana retired, he was an eight-time Pro Bowl selection, four-time Super Bowl winner with three Super Bowl MVP awards, two-time league most valuable player, and was the 1986 NFL Comeback Player of the Year. Finally, here's a did you know about Joe Montana. After the 1983 NFL draft, John Elway had no intentions of playing in Baltimore. That's been a well-documented story. Did you know? That one of the teams that considered trading for Elway was the 49ers. The deal would have sent Montana to Baltimore, and Elway, who wanted to play on the West Coast, would have been the new quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers and would have been an immediate local favorite because Elway starred at nearby Stanford. In addition to that, Elway would have been under the tutelage of Bill Walsh. That's scary stuff, isn't it? Number three. The Rochester Royals beat the New York Knicks in, the NBA, in a wild NBA Finals. On April 21, 1951, the Rochester Royals, led by Orny Risen's 24 points and 13 rebounds, defeated the New York Knicks 79 75 to claim their first and only NBA title. The Royals, now known as the Sacramento Kings, claimed the title in the first NBA final to go to full seven games. This was also the only NBA final to go seven games after a team went up three games to none in the series. Rochester, behind the play of Ryzen and Jack Coleman, won the first two games at Edgerton Park Arena in Rochester. In Game 3, the Royals, behind Ryzen's 27 points, gave Rochester a 78-71 win in Madison Square Garden in New York City. With the Royals up three games to none in the series, many sports writers and fans considered the series over. Yet the Knicks behind Harry Gallatin, Connie Simmons, and Max Zeslowski even the series winning three straight games to force the NBA's first ever game seven in Rochester. And as it turned out, the Knicks fell short in the seventh game, losing 79 to 75 for the Royals Kings first and only NBA title. Number two, Michael Jordan dropped 63 points in the Boston garden. Now I remember this game as if it was last week. The Boston Celtics, with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Danny Ainge, and the crew, faced the upstart Chicago Bulls with a young Michael Jordan. The Celtics had the NBA best had an NBA best record at 67 and 15, while the Bulls were 30 and 52, the worst record of any team in the postseason that year. Sports writers and analysts were convinced that this would be basically a warm up for the Celtics playoff run. This was the second straight year the Bulls were in the postseason, and just like the season before, Chicago's stay in the Eastern Conference postseason was going to be brief. And after it was all said and done, the Bulls were swept in the, by the eventual champion Celtics in three games. The first-round matchups were best of three out of five in 1986. But the most notable thing about this entire series was not Boston's three-game sweep of the stand all-back coach Bulls. It was Game 2 of the series in Boston Garden. On April 20th, 1986, Michael Jordan gave fans a glimpse of the future as he scored an NBA postseason scoring record 63 points in a 135-131 double overtime loss to the Celtics. Jordan went 22 of 41 from the floor and 19 of 21 from the free throw line, yet his 63 points still were not enough as Bird finished with 36 and McHale with 27, and to this day Still, the most points ever scored in an NBA postseason game. And the number one sports moment that took place between the dates of April the 16th and April 22nd, four classic ballparks opened their doors. Now in this case, I have combined four moments into one. But combined, they have been the foundation of the game of baseball for over 100 years. This week in history saw the opening of four classic major league ballparks. Fenway Park in Boston, Wrigley Field in Chicago, Tiger Stadium in Detroit, and Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. First on the list, Fenway Park, which opened its doors to the public on April 20th, 1912. On that afternoon, the Red Sox defeated their rival New York Highlanders, who would change their name sometime later to the Yankees. More on them later. Fans would consider the stadium good luck, because later that year the Sox would win the world series against the new york giants in the deciding game of the series giants outfielder fred snodgrass muffed a fly ball late in the games late in game seven that opened the door for a boston rally and claimed the world series victory yet throughout his throughout his history it has been the site of so much baseball boston baseball anguish bob gibson in the 1967 world series Bucky Dent's in 1978 dramatic home run, just to name a few, but there were some good times mixed in as well. The entire career of Ted Williams, Game 4 of the 2005 in the American League Championship Series that featured the comeback of all comebacks that began at Fenway Park. Fenway was also the site of the greatest World Series game ever, Game 6, 1975, and Carlton Fist waving the ball around the left field foul pole, and it all started this week in 1912. Fenway Park is still around, as well as Wrigley Field on Chicago's North Side. It opened as the home of the new, of the now defunct Chicago Whales of the late Federal League in 1914. On April 20th, 1916, the Cubs became their new permanent resident. They christened their new home with a 7-6 win over the Cincinnati Reds in their home opener. Wrigley Field was the last stadium to have lights, and that wasn't until August 9th of 1988. It was the site of the Bartman incident that anyone over the age of thirty remembers. Wow, has it been that long? But Cubs like Billy Williams and Ron Santo and Ernie Banks have all played amid the ivy covered walls of this magnificent neighborhood ballpark. The third of these classic diamonds opened on April 20th, 1912, and interestingly enough, the same day as Fenway. In the beginning, it was called Naven Field, located on the corner of Michigan and Trumbull Avenue, in the Corktown neighborhood of Detroit. This intersection, which would be nicknamed simply The Corner, would be the home of the Detroit Tigers until 1999. It was the site of several Tiger World Championship victories, including winning it all in 1984 against the San Diego Padres. The 84 Tigers is ranked with some of the greatest teams in baseball history as they started the campaign with a 35-5 record in their first 40 games. Detroit is famous, and also notorious, for its passionate fans. And that was never quite more evident than in Game 7 of the 1934 World Series between the Tigers and the St. Louis Cardinals. In the bottom of the fifth inning in Game 7, the Tigers already trailing 7-0, Cardinal left fielder Ducky Medwick slid hard into Detroit third baseman Marv Owen. Owen and Medwick got into a scuffle at third base. And in the top of the sixth, after taking his position in the outfield, Medrick Medrick was pelted with beer bottles and fruit by Detroit fans and was taken out of the game for his own safety. Detroit's wild and raucous fan tradition goes back a long way. Last and the most famous of the stadiums that opened their doors this week, when it it opened on Wednesday, April 18th, 1923, on the site of a lumber yard in the Bronx. The New York Evening Telegram stated, quote, everything smelled of fresh paint fresh plaster and fresh grass unquote. after spending the after spending the first decade and a half at hilltop park in manhattan and another few years contending with the new york giants and their manager john mcgraw at the polo grounds the yankees finally had a first-rate home of their own the yankees won that day four to one as babe ruth connected on a three-run home run to give the the yankees a four to one win over the Red Sox. The Yankees would win their first of 27 World Championships there and that site in the Bronx would hold more baseball history than any place for any sports on the planet. It was the site of the famous Lou Gehrig luckiest man in the face of the earth speech. Don Larsen pitched a World Series perfect game there. Reggie Jackson hit three consecutive World Series home runs there. Babe Ruth hit his 60th home run there against the Senators in 1927. Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris had their epic home run chase there in 1961 where Maris broke Babe Ruth's record with a home run that landed in the same area most of Ruth's shots would end up in the right short right field porch at Yankee Stadium. So Yankee Stadium, Wrigley Field, Tiger Stadium, Fenway Park. Four of baseball's best and most legendary diamonds opened their doors this week in sports history and that would do it for this week's edition of the top five and coming up next we'll send a solemn remembrance on the anniversary of one of the darkest days not only in british sporting history but sports around the globe the date april 15th 1989 and the hillsborough disaster coming up after this short break
0: We here at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is, most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the website today, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. With Row 1, you can save up to 15% in the gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes, including wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 shop has thousands more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, as well as shower curtains. Royal Retros is the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from the defunct leagues and the teams in those leagues. Play Classic has your sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN to save 10% off your first order. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to $100. And Mega Seats are tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So there you have it. When you check out the sponsors and deals tabs on the Sports History Network website, you'll find plenty of deals to save you some dough. Check it out today.
1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Glad you're able to stick around. And to conclude this episode, I would like to take a trip back to the spring of 1989 and across the pond. This part of the show, we call it the shout out as we take a look at a significant athlete or event that took place, which is celebrating an anniversary of the week of the release of this episode. In adi- in this edition of the program, the term "shout out" I feel is not appropriate to this story. It is more of a remem- more of a remembrance than anything. On April fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine, at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England, Liverpool was set to face Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup semi final. Now, to those who are not really versed in English football, the FA Cup or the Football Association Challenge Cup is a soccer competition in England where all the teams are eligible to play in a knockout tournament to determine the best soccer team in England. It is sort of like having a baseball tournament where every team from Major League Baseball all the way down to single-A minor leagues and everyone in between are in a single-elimination tournament. On that afternoon, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest began the game with hopes of reaching the final at legendary Wembley Stadium. However, as the day ended, English sports writers and newscasters called it, quote, the darkest day in British football history, unquote. What happened was simply known as the Hillsborough disaster, which was, a hu- which was a fatal human crush during the FA Cup semifinal where two standing room only pins on one end of Hillsborough Stadium was overcrowded with fans, which caused the deaths of 97 people and 766 injuries. It is the highest death toll in British sporting history. What led to the crush was shortly before kickoff. In an attempt to ease overcrowding outside the stadium near just two turnstiles, the commander of the police that was in charge of security, David Duckenfield, ordered one of the exit gates open that led to an influx of people entering the standing room only area on one end of the stadium. At that end of the stadium, there was a narrow tunnel which led to the overcrowded pins. Keeping the fans off the field was a 10-foot-high steel fence. With the stampede of people in that confined area, fans that were close to the field were pressed against the fence with nowhere to go. Most of the injuries and deaths occurred close to the field as they were pinned against the fence. The most dramatic photos and images from the disaster came was people literally being crushed to death against the steel railing that kept fans off the field to relieve pressure fans that were being pull- fans were being pulled up to the second level of the stadium from the fans seated in that area people that were entering the gates were unaware of the problems at the fence people and stadium ushers usually stood at the entrance to the tunnel And when the standing-room-only pins reached capacity, they would direct fans to the side pins. But in this case, for reasons not fully explained, it didn't happen. Shortly after the game began at 3 p.m. local time, fans were still streaming into the game. Liverpool's goalkeeper, Bruce Groblar, reported fans pleading with him to to help them as the situation worsened. The fans were beginning to climb the fence onto the field, and the police tried to stop them at first... Thinking it was a field invasion, then South Yorkshire police superintendent realized the situation and ran on the field to gain the attention of game referee Ray Lewis. He stopped the match shortly after it began as fans climbed the fence in an effort to escape the crush. On that end of the stadium, referred to as the Leppings Lane end, the crowd that the crowd spilled onto the field, congregated there to receive medical attention. The players by this time had been ushered into the dressing room where they were told there would be a 30-minute postponement. Those still trapped in the pens were packed so tightly that many of the victims died of compressive asphyxiation while standing. Meanwhile, on the pitch... Police, stewards, and members of the St. John Ambulance Service were overwhelmed. Many uninjured fans assisted the injured. Several attempted CPR, and others tore down advertising boards to use as stretchers. In the following days, condolences flooded from across the world, led by Queen Elizabeth, as well as Pope John Paul II and President George Herbert Walker Bush. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Home Secretary Douglas Hurd visited Hillsborough the day after the disaster and met with the survivors. Anfield Stadium, the home of Liverpool, was opened the next day to allow fans to pay tribute to the dead. Thousands of fans visited the stadium and and the stadium was filled with flowers, scarves, and other tributes. In all, more than 200,000 people visited the shrine out inside the stadium. In the following days and weeks, South Yorkshire police fed the press false stories suggesting that the football hooliganism and drunkenness by Liverpool supporters had caused the disaster. UEFA President Jacques Georges caused controversy by describing the Liverpool supporters as quote-unquote beasts, wrongly suggesting that hooliganism was the cause of the disaster which had occurred less than four years after the infamous Heisel Stadium disaster. His remarks led to the Liverpool Football Club calling for his resignation, but he apologized upon discovering hooliganism was not the cause. Blaming Liverpool fans persisted even after the Taylor Report of 1990, which found that the main cause of the failure main cause was failure of crowd control by the South Yorkshire Police. Following the Taylor Report, The Director of Public Prosecutions ruled there was no evidence to justify prosecution of any individuals or institutions. The disaster led to a number of safety improvements in the largest English football grounds, notably the elimination of fence-standing terraces in favor of all cedar stadiums in the top two tiers of English football. The first coroner's inquest into the Hillsborough disaster was completed in 1991 and concluded with verdicts of accidental death in respect to all the deceased. Families disputed the findings and fought to have the case reopened. In 1997, Lord Justice Stuart Smith concluded that there was no justification for a new inquiry. Private prosecutions brought by the Hillsborough Family Support Group against Duckingfield and his deputy, Bernard Murray, failed in 2000. By 2009, a Hillsborough Independent Panel was formed to review the evidence. Reporting in 2012, it confirmed Taylor's 1990s criticism and revealed details about the extended police efforts to shift the blame on the fans, the role of other emergency services, and the error of the first coroner's inquests. The panel's report resulted in the previous findings of accidental death being quashed and the creation of a new coroner's inquest. It also produced two criminal investigations that led, the police in tw- that led, led by the police in 2012. Operation Resolved looked into the causes of the disaster and by Independent Police Co- Complaints Commission to examine the actions of the police in the aftermath. The second coroner's inquest was held from April 14th April 2014 to April 2016 and they ruled that the supporters were that the supporters were unlawfully killed on to gross negligent failures by the police and ambulance services to, f- to fulfill their duty of care the inquest also found that the design of the stadium contributed to the crush and that the supporters were not the blame for the dangerous conditions public anger over The actions of the police force during the second inquest led to the suspension of South Yorkshire Police Chief Constable David Crompton following the verdict. On June of 2017, six people were charged with offenses including manslaughter by gross negligence, misconduct in public office, and perverting the course of justice for their own actions during and after the disaster. The Crown Prosecution Service subsequently dropped all charges against one of the defendants. The Hillsborough disaster was one of the darkest moments in the history of English football and is still talked about to this day. The game was eventually resumed, moving the match to Old Trafford in Manchester on May 7th with Liverpool beating Nottingham Forest. In the FA Final, Liverpool would beat Everton as both teams wore black mourning armbands as a gesture of respect to the Vista, through the victims. And that will do it for this edition of the historically speaking sports podcast. Thank you guys for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes when they are released and check us out on Twitter at historically SP two, where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And you can also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do And also, please tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend, and even tell a passerby on the street about us. I would really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dana Utkust, your host saying so long.